listening to the However Improbable podcast. The Valley of Fear by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, narrated by Sarah Cole. Chapter 3 The Tragedy of Burlstone. Now, for a moment, I will ask leave to remove my own insignificant personality and to describe events which occurred before we arrived upon the scene by the light of knowledge which came to us afterwards. Only in this way can I make the reader appreciate the people concerned and the strange setting in which their fate was cast. The village of Burlstone is a small and very ancient cluster of half-timbered cottages on the northern border of the country of Sussex. For centuries it had remained unchanged, but within the last few years its picturesque appearance and situation have attracted a number of well-to-do residents whose villas peep out the woods around. These woods are locally supposed to be the extreme fringes of the Great Weald Forest, which thins away until it reaches the northern chalk downs. A number of small shops have come into being to meet the wants of this increased population, so there seems to be pro- some prospect that Burlstone may soon grow from an ancient village into a modern town. It is the center for a considerable area of country. Since Turnbridge Wells, the nearest place of importance is 10 or 12 miles to the eastward, over the border of Kent. About a half a mile from the town, standing in an old park famous for its huge beech trees, is the ancient manor house of Burlstone. Part of this venerable building dates back to the time of the First Crusade, when Hugo de Capus built a fortalice in the center of the estate, which had been granted to him by the Red King. This was destroyed by fire in 1543, and some of its smoke-blackened cornerstones were used when, in Jacobean times, a brick country house rose upon the ruins of the feudal castle. The manor house, with its many gables and its small diamond pane windows, was still much as the builders had left it in the early 17th century. Of the double moats, which had guarded its more warlike predecessor, the outer had been allowed to dry up, and served the humble function of a kitchen garden. The inner one was still there, and lay forty feet in breadth, though now only a few feet in depth, round the whole house. A small stream fed it, and continued beyond it, so the sheet of water, though turbid, was never ditch-like or unhealthy. The ground-floor windows were within a foot of the surface of the water. The only approach to the house was over a drawbridge, the chain and windlass of which had long been rusted and broken. The last tenants of the manor house had, however, with characteristic energy, set this right, and the drawbridge was not only capable of being raised, but actually was raised every evening and lowered every morning. By thus renewing the custom of the old feudal days, the manor house was converted into an island during the night, a fact which had a very direct bearing upon the mystery which was soon to engage the attention of all England. The house had been untenanated for some years and was threatening to molder into a picturesque decay when the Douglases took possession of it. The family consisted only of two individuals, John Douglas and his wife. Douglas was a remarkable man, both in character and in person. In age, he may have been about 50, with a strong-jawed, rugged face, a grizzling mustache, peculiarly keen gray eyes, and a wiry, vigorous figure which had lost nothing to the strength and activity of youth. He was cheery and genial to all, but somewhat offhand in his manners, giving the impression that he had seen life and social strata on some far lower horizon than the country society of Sussex. Yet, though looked at with some curiosity and reserve by his more cultivated neighbors, he soon acquired a great popularity among the villagers, subscribing handsomely to all local objects and attending their smoking concerts and other functions, where, having a remarkable rich tenor voice, he was always ready to oblige with an excellent song. 
He appeared to have plenty of money, which was said to have been gained in the California gold fields. And it was clear from his own talk and that of his wife that he had spent a good part of life in America. The good impression which had been produced by his generosity and by his democratic manners was increased by a reputation gained for utter indifference to danger. Though a wretched rider, he turned out at every meet and took the most amazing falls in his determination to hold his own with the best. When the vicarage caught fire, he distinguished himself also by fearlessness with which he re-entered the building to save property after the local fire brigade had given it up as impossible. Thus it came about that John Douglas of the manor house had within five years won himself quite a reputation in Burlstone. His wife, too, was popular with those who made her acquaintance, though, after the English fashion, the callers upon a stranger who settled in the country without introduction were few and far between. This mattered the less to her, as she was retiring by disposition, and very much absorbed, to all appearance, in her husband and and her domestic duties. It was known that she was an English lady who had met Mr. Douglas in London, he being at the time a widower. She was a beautiful woman, tall, dark, and slender, some twenty years younger than her husband, a disparity which seemed in no way wise to mar the contentment of their family life. It was remarked sometimes, however, by those who knew them best, that the confidence between the two did not appear to be complete, since the wife was either very reticent about her husband's past life, or else, as seemed more likely, was imperfectly informed about it. It had also been noted and commented on by a few observant people that there were signs sometimes of the nerve strain upon the part of Mrs. Douglas, and that she would display acute uneasiness if her absent husband should ever be particularly late in his return. On a quiet countryside, where all gossip is welcome, this weakness of the lady of the manor house did not pass without remark, and it balked larger upon people's memory when the events arose which gave it very special significance. There was yet another individual whose residence under that roof was, it is true, only an intermittent one, but whose presence at the time of the strange happenings, which will now be narrated, brought his name prominently before the public. This was Cecil James Barker of Hales Lodge, Hampstead. Cecil Barker's tall, loose-jointed figure was a familiar one in the main streets of Burlstone Village, for he was a frequent and welcome visitor at the manor house. He was the more noticed as being the only friend of the past unknown life of Mr. Douglas, who was ever seen in his new English surroundings. Barker was himself undoubtedly an Englishman, but by his remarks it was clear that he had first known Douglas in America, and had there lived on intimate terms with him. He appeared to be a man of considerable wealth, reputed to be a bachelor. In age he was rather younger than Douglas, forty-five at the most, a tall, straight, broad-chested fellow with a clean-shaved prize-fighter face, thick, strong black eyebrows, and a pair of masterful black eyes which might, even without the aid of his very capable hands, clear away for him through a hostile crowd. He neither rode nor shot, but spent his days in wandering round the village with his pipe in his mouth, or in driving with his host, or in his absence with his hostess over the beautiful countryside. An easy-going, free-handed gentleman, said Ames, the butler, but, my word, I'd rather not be the man that crossed him. He was cordial and intimate with Douglas, and was no less friendly with his wife, a friendship which more than once seemed to cause some irritation to the husband, so that even the servants were able to perceive his annoyance. Such was the third person, who was one of the family when the catastrophe occurred. As to the other denizens of the old building, it will suffice out of a large household to mention the prim, respectable, and capable Ames, and Mrs. Allen, a buxom and cheerful person, who relieved the lady of some of her household cares. The other six servants in the house bear no relation to the events of the night of January 6th. It was at 11.45 that the first alarm reached the small local police station in charge of Sergeant Wilson of the Sussex Constabulatory. Cecil Barker, much excited, 
had rushed up to the door and peeled furiously upon the bell. A terrible tragedy had occurred at the manor house, and John Douglas had been murdered. That was the breathless burden of his message. He had hurried back to the house, followed within a few minutes by the police sergeant, who arrived at the scene of the crime a little after 12 o'clock, after taking prompt steps to warn the country authorities that something serious was afoot. On reaching the manor house, the sergeant had found the drawbridge down, the windows lighted up, and the whole household in a state of wild confusion and alarm. The white-faced servants were huddled together in the hall, with the frightened butler wringing his hands in the doorway. Only Cecil Barker seemed to be the master of himself and his emotions. He had opened the door, which was nearest to the entrance, and had beckoned the servants to follow him. At that moment, there arrived Dr. Wood, a brisk and capable general practitioner from the village. The three men entered the fatal room together, while the horror-stricken butler followed at their heels, closing the door behind him to shut out the terrible scene from the maidservants. The dead man lay on his back, sprawled with outstretched limbs in the center of the room. He was clad only in a pink dressing gown which covered his nightclothes. There were carpet slippers on his bare feet. The doctor knelt beside him and held down the hand lamp which stood on the table. One glance at the victim was enough to show the healer that his presence could be dispensed with. The man had been horribly injured. Lying across his chest was a curious weapon, a shotgun, with a barrel sawed off a foot in front of the triggers. It was clear that this had been fired at close range, and that he had received the whole charge of it in the face, blowing his head almost to pieces. The triggers must have been wired together, so as to make the simultaneous discharge more destructive. The country policeman was unnerved and troubled by the tremendous responsibility which had suddenly come upon him. "'We will touch nothing until my superiors arrive,' he said, in a hushed voice, staring in horror at the dreadful head. "'Nothing has been touched up to now,' said Cecil Barker. "'I'll answer for that. You'll see it exactly as I found it.' "'When was that?' The sergeant had drawn out his notebook. "'It was just half past eleven. I had not begun to undress, and I was sitting by the fire in my bedroom when I heard the report.' It was not very loud. It seemed to be muffled. I rushed down. I don't suppose it was thirty seconds before I was in the room. Was the door open? Yes, it was open. Poor Douglas was lying as you see him. His bedroom candle was burning on the table. It was I who lit the lamp some minutes afterwards. Did you see no one? No. I heard Mrs. Douglas coming down the stair behind me, and I rushed out to prevent her from seeing this dreadful sight. Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, came and took her away. Ames had arrived, and we ran back to the room once more. But surely I have heard the drawbridge is kept up at night. Yes, they was up until I lowered it. Then how could any murderer have got away? It's out of the question. Mr. Douglas must have shot himself. That was our first idea, but see. Barker drew aside the curtain and showed that the long diamond pane window was open to its full extent. And look at this. He held the lamp down and illuminated a smudge of blood like the mark of a boot sole upon the windowsill. Someone has stood there in getting out. You mean someone waited across the moat? Exactly. Then if you were in the room within half a minute of the crime, he must have been in the water at that very moment. I have not a doubt of it. I wish to heaven that I had rushed to the window, but the curtain screened it, as you can see, and so it never occurred to me. Then I heard the step of Mrs. Douglas, and I could not let her enter the room. It would have been too horrible. Horrible enough, said the doctor, looking at the shattered head and the terrible marks which surrounded it. I've never seen such injuries since the Burlstone Railway smash. But I say, remarked the police sergeant, whose slow, bucolic common sense was still pondering the open window, it's all very well you're saying that a man escaped by wading this moat, but, but what I ask you is, how did he get into the house at all if the bridge was up? Ah, that's the question, said Barker. At what time was it raised? 
It was nearly six o'clock, said Ames, the butler. I've heard, said the sergeant, that it was usually raised at sunset. That would be nearer half past four than six this time of year. Mrs. Douglas had visitors to tea, said Ames. I couldn't raise it until they went. Then I wound it up myself. Then it comes to this, said the sergeant. If anyone came from outside, if they did, they must have got in across the bridge before six and been in hiding ever since, until Mr. Douglas came into the room after eleven. That is so. Mr. Douglas went round the house every night the last thing before he turned in to see the lights were right. That brought him in here. The man was waiting and shot him. Then he got away through the window and left his gun behind. That's how I read it, for nothing else fits the facts. The sergeant picked up a card which lay beside the dead man on the floor, the initials VV, and under them the number 341 were rudely scrawled in ink upon it. What's this? he asked, holding it up. Barker looked at it with curiosity. I never noticed it before, he said. The murderer must have left it behind. VV, 341. I can make no sense of that. The sergeant kept turning it over in his big fingers. What's VV? Someone's initials, maybe? What have you got there, Dr. Wood? It was a good-sized hammer which had been lying on the rug in front of the fireplace, a substantial workmanlike hammer. Cecil Barker pointed to a box of brass-headed nails upon the mantel. Mr. Douglas was altering the pictures yesterday, he said. I saw him myself standing upon that chair and fixing the big picture above it. That accounts for the hammer. We'd best put it back on the rug where we found it, said the sergeant, scratching his puzzled head in his perplexity. It will want the best brains in the force to get to the bottom of this thing. It will be a London job before it's finished. He raised the hand lamp and walked slowly around the room. Hello, he cried excitedly, drawing the window curtain to one side. What o'clock were these curtains drawn? When the lamps were lit, said the butler, it would be shortly after four. Someone had been hiding here, surely enough. He held down the light, and the marks of muddy boots were very visible in the corner. I'm bound to say this bears out your theory, Mr. Barker. It looks as if the man got into the house after four when the curtains were drawn, and before six when the bridge was raised. He slipped into this room, and because it was the first he saw. There was no other place where he could hide, so he popped in behind this curtain. That all seems clear enough. It is likely that his main idea was to burgle the house, but Mr. Douglas chanced to come upon him, so he murdered him and escaped. That's how I read it, said Barker. Ars, I say, aren't we wasting precious time? Couldn't we start out and scour the country before the fellow gets away? The sergeant considered this for a moment. There are no trains before six in the morning, so he can't get away by rail. If he goes by road with his legs dripping, it's odds that someone will notice him. Anyhow, I can't leave her myself until I am relieved. But I think none of you should go until we see more clearly how we all stand. The doctor had taken the lamp and was narrowly scrutinizing the body. What's this mark? he asked. Could this have any connection with the crime? The dead man's right arm was thrust out from his dressing gown and exposed as high as the elbow. About halfway up the forearm was a curious brown design, a triangle inside a circle, standing out in vivid relief upon the lard-colored skin. It's not tattooed, said the doctor, peering through his glasses. I've never seen anything like it. The man has been branded at some time as they brand cattle. What is the meaning of this? I don't profess to know the meaning of it, said Cecil Barker, but I have seen the mark on Douglas many times this last ten years. And so have I, said the butler. Many a time when the master had rolled up his sleeves, I noticed that very mark. I've often wondered what it could be. Then it has nothing to do with the crime, anyhow, said the sergeant. But it's a rum thing all the same. Everything about this case is rum. Well, what is it now? The butler had given an exclamation of astonishment and was pointing at the dead man's outstretched hand. 
They've taken his wedding ring, he gasped. What? Yes, indeed. Master always wore his plain gold wedding ring on the little finger of his left hand. That ring with the rough nugget on it above it, and that twisted snake ring on the third finger. There's the nugget, and there's the snake, but the wedding ring is gone. He's right, said Barker. Do you tell me, said the sergeant, that the wedding ring was below the other? Always. Then the murderer, or whoever it was, first took off this ring you call the nugget ring, then the wedding ring, and afterwards put the nugget ring back on. That is so. The worthy country policeman shook his head. Seems to me the sooner we get London onto this case, the better, he said. White Mason is a smart man. No local job has ever been too much for White Mason. It won't be long now before he's here to help us, but I expect we'll need to look to London before we're through. Anyhow, I'm not ashamed to say that it is a deal too thick for the likes of me. Chapter 4. Darkness. At three in the morning, the chief Sussex detective, obeying the urgent call from Sergeant Wilson of Burlstone, arrived from headquarters in a light dog cart behind a breathless trotter. By the 5.45 train in the morning, he had sent his message to Scotland Yard, and he was at the Burlstone station at 12 o'clock to welcome us. White Mason was a quiet, comfortable-looking person in a loose tweed suit with a clean-shaven, ruddy face, a stoutish body, and powerful bandy legs, adorned with gaiters, looking like a small farmer, a retired gamekeeper, or anything upon earth except a very favorable specimen of the provincial criminal officer. "'A real downright snorter, Mr. MacDonald,' he kept repeating. "'We'll have the pressmen down like flies when they understand it. I'm hoping we will get our work done before they get poking their noses into it and messing up all the trails.' There has been nothing like this that I can remember. There are some bits that will come to you, Mr. Holmes, or I am mistaken. And you also, Dr. Watson, for the medicos will have a word to say before we're finished. Your room is at the Westville Arms. There's no other place, but I hear it is clean and good. The man will carry your bags. This way, gentlemen, if you please. He was a very bustling and genial person, the Sussex detective. In ten minutes, we had found our quarters. In ten more, we were seated in the parlor of the inn, and being treated to a rapid sketch of these events which have been outlined in the previous chapter. MacDonald made an occasional note, while Holmes sat absorbed, with the expression of surprise and reverent admiration with which the botanist surveys the rare and precious bloom. Remarkable, he said, when the case was unfolded. Most remarkable. I can hardly recall any case where the features have been more peculiar. I thought you'd say that, Mr. Holmes, said White Mason, in great delight. We were well up in the times in Sussex. I've told you now how matters were up to the time when I took over from Sergeant Wilson between three and four in this morning. My word, but I need not have been in such a hurry as it turned out, for there was nothing immediate that I could do. Sergeant Wilson has had all the facts. I checked them and considered them and maybe added a few of my own. What were they? said Holmes eagerly. Well, I first had the hammer examined. There was Dr. Wood there to help me. We found no signs of violence on it. I was hoping if Mr. Douglas defended himself with the hammer, he might have left his mark upon the murderer before he dropped it on the mat, but there was no stain. That, of course, proves nothing at all, remarked Inspector MacDonald. There has been many a hammer murder and no trace on the hammer. Quite so. It doesn't prove it wasn't used, but there may have been stains, and that would have helped us. As a matter of fact, there was none. Then I examined the gun. There were buckshot cartridges, and as Sergeant Wilson pointed out, the triggers were wired together, so if you pulled on the hinder one... Both barrels were discharged. Whoever fixed that up had made up his mind he was going to take no chances of missing his man. The sawed gun was not more than two feet long. One could carry it easily under one's coat. There was no complete maker's name, but the printed letters P-E-N were on the fluting between the barrels, and the rest of the name had been cut off by the saw. 
A big P with a flourish above it. An E and N smaller, asked Holmes. Exactly. Pennsylvania Small Arms Company. Well-known American firm, said Holmes. White Mason gazed at my friend as the little village practitioner looks at the Harley Street specialist, who by a word can solve the difficulties that perplex him. That is very helpful, Mr. Holmes. No doubt you're right. Wonderful. Wonderful. Do you carry the names of all gunmakers in the world in your memory? Holmes dismissed the subject with a wave. No doubt it is an American shotgun, White Mason continued. I seem to have read that a sawed-off shotgun is a weapon used in some parts of America. There is some evidence, then, that this man who entered the house and killed its master was an American. MacDonald shook his head. Man, you are surely traveling over fast, he said. I have heard no evidence yet that any stranger was ever in the house at all. The open door, the blood on the sill, the queer card, the marks of boots in the corner, the gun. Nothing there that could not have been arranged. Mr. Douglas was an American, or had lived long in America. So had Mr. Barker. You don't need to import an American from outside in order to account for American doings. Ames, the butler, what about him? Is he reliable? He had been with Douglas ever since he took the manor house five years ago. He's never seen a gun of this sort in the house. This gun was made to conceal. That's why the barrels were sawed. It would fit in any box. How could he swear there was no gun in the house? Well, anyhow, he never saw one. MacDonald shook his obstinate Scotch head. I'm not convinced yet that there ever was anyone in the house, said he. I'm asking you to consider. His accent became more Aberdonian as he lost himself in his argument. I'm asking you to consider what it involves if you suppose that this gun was ever brought into the house and all these strange things were done by a person from outside. Oh, man, it's just inconceivable. It's clean against common sense. I put it to you, Mr. Holmes, judging by what we've heard. Well, state your case, Mr. Mack, said Holmes in his most judicial style. The man is not a burglar, supposing he ever existed. The ring business and the card point to premeditated murder for some private reason. Very good. Here's a man who slips into a house with the deliberate intention of committing murder. He knows, if he knows anything, that he will have a difficulty in making his escape, as the house is surrounded with water. What weapon would he choose? You would say the most silent in the world. Then he would hope, when the deed was done, to slip quietly from the window, to wade the moat, and to get away at his leisure. That's understandable. But it is understandable that he should go out of his way to bring with him the most noisy weapon he could select, knowing well it would fetch every human being in the house to the spot as quickly as they can run, and that it and that it is all and that it is all odds he will be seen before he can get across the moat. Is that credible, Mr. Holmes? Well, you put the case strongly, said my friend. Well, you put the case strongly, my friend replied thoughtfully. It certainly needs a good deal of justification. May I ask, Mr. White Mason, whether you examined the farthest side of the moat at once to see if there were any signs of the man having climbed out of the water? There were no signs, Mr. Holmes, but it is a stone ledge and one could hardly expect them. No tracks or marks. None. Huh. Would there, would there be any objection, Mr. White Mason, to our going down to the house at once? There may possibly be some small point which may be suggestive. I was going to propose it, Mr. Holmes, but thought it well put you in touch with all the facts before we go. I suppose if anyone should strike you... White Mason looked doubtfully at the amateur. I've worked with Mr. Holmes before, said Inspector MacDonald. He plays the game. My own idea of the game, at any rate, said Holmes with a smile. I go into a case to help the ends of justice and the work of the police. If I have ever separated myself from the official force, it is because they have first separated themselves from me. I have no wish ever to score at their expense. At the same time, Mr. White Mason, 
I claim the right to work in my own way and give my results at my own time. Complete, rather than in stages. I am sure we're honored by your presence and to show you all we know, said White Mason. Come along, Dr. Watson, and when the time comes, we'll all hope for a place in your book. We walked down the quaint village street with a row of pollarded elms on either side of it. Just beyond were two ancient stone pillars, weather-stained and lichen-blotched, bearing upon their summits a shapeless something which had once been the rampant lion of Capu of Burlstone. A short walk along the winding drive with such a sward and oaks around it, as one only sees in rural England, and then a sudden turn, and the low, long, Jacobian house of dingy, liver-colored brick lay before us, with an old-fashioned garden of cut yews on either side. As we approached it, there was the wooden drawbridge and the beautiful broad moat, as still and luminous as quicksilver in the cold winter sunshine. Three centuries had flowed past the old manor house, centuries of births and of homecomings, of country dances and of the meetings of fox hunters. Strange that now in its old age this dark business should have cast its shadow upon the venerable walls. And yet, those strange, peat roofs and quaint overhung gables were a fitting covering to grim and terrible intrigue. As I looked at the deep-set windows and the long sweep of the dull-colored, water-lapped front, I felt no more fitting scene could be set for such a tragedy. "'That's the window,' said White Mason. "'The one on the immediate right of the drawbridge. It's open just as it was found last night.' "'It looks rather narrow for a man to pass.' "'Well, it wasn't a fat man, anyhow. We don't need your deductions, Mr. Holmes, to tell us that, but you or I could squeeze through all right.' Holmes walked to the edge of the moat and looked across. Then he examined the stone ledge and the grass border beyond it. "'I've had a good look, Mr. Holmes,' said White Mason. "'There was nothing there, no sign that anyone had landed, but why should he leave any sign?' "'Exactly. Why should he? Is the water always so turbid? Generally about this color, the stream brings down the clay. How deep is it? About two feet at either side and three in the middle? "'So we can put aside all idea of the man having been drowned in crossing. No, a child could not be drowned in it.' We walked across the drawbridge and were admitted by a quaint, gnarled, dried-up person, the butler Ames. The poor old fellow was white and quivering from the shock. The village sergeant, a tall, formal, melancholy man, still held his vigil in the room of fate. The doctor had departed. "'Anything fresh, Sergeant Wilson?' asked White Mason. "'No, sir. Then you can go home. You've done enough. We'll send for you if we want you. The butler had better wait outside.' Tell him to warn Mr. Cecil Barker, Mrs. Douglas, and the housekeeper that we may want a word with them presently. Now, gentlemen, perhaps you will allow me to give you the views I have formed first, and then you will be able to arrive at your own. He impressed me, this country specialist. He had a solid grip of fact and a cool, clear, common-sense brain, which should take him some way in his profession. Holmes listened to him intently, with no sign of that impatience which the official exponent too often produced. Is it suicide or is it murder? That's our first question, gentlemen, is it not? If it were suicide, then we have to believe that this man began by taking off his own wedding ring and concealing it. That he came down here in his dressing gown, trampled mud into a corner, behind the curtain in order to give the idea someone had waited for him, opened the window, put blood on the... We can surely dismiss that, said MacDonald. So, I think, suicide is out of the question. Then a murder has been done. What we have to determine is whether it was done by someone outside or inside the house. Well, let's hear your argument. There are considerable difficulties both ways, and yet one or the other it must be. We will suppose first that some person or persons inside the house did the crime. They got this man down here at a time when everyone was still, and yet no one was asleep. They then did the deed with the queerest and noisiest weapon in the world so as to tell everyone what had happened. 
a weapon that was never seen in the house before. This does not seem a very likely start, does it? No, it does not. Well, then, everyone has agreed that after the alarm was given, only a minute at the most had passed before the whole household, not Mr. Cecil Barker alone, though he claims to have been first, but Ames and all of them were on the spot. Do you tell me that in that time, the guilty person managed to make footmarks in the corner, open the window, mark the sill with blood, take the wedding ring off the dead man's finger, and all the rest of it? It's impossible. You put it very clearly, said Holmes. I am inclined to agree with you. Well, then, we are driven back to the theory that it was done by someone from outside. We are still faced with some big difficulties, but anyhow, they have ceased to be impossibilities. The man got into the house between 4.30 and 6, that is to say, between dusk and the time when the bridge was raised. There had been some visitors, and the door was open, so there was nothing to prevent him. He may have been a common burglar, or he may have had some private grudge against Mr. Douglas. Since Mr. Douglas had spent some of his life in America, and the shotgun seems to be an American weapon... It would seem the private grudge is the more likely theory. He slipped into the room because it was the first he came to, and he hid behind the curtain. Then he remained until past eleven at night. At that time, Mr. Douglas entered the room. It was a short interview, if there was any interview at all, for Mrs. Douglas declared her husband had not left her more than a few minutes when she heard the shot. The candle shows that, said Holmes. Exactly. The candle, which was not a new one, is not burned more than half an inch. He must have placed it on the table before he was attacked, Otherwise, of course, it would have fallen when he fell. This shows he was not attacked the instant he entered the room. When Mr. Barker arrived, the candle was lit and the lamp was out. That's all clear enough. Well, now we can reconstruct things on these lines. Mr. Douglas enters the room. He puts down the candle. A man appears from behind the curtain. He's armed with his gun. He demands the wedding ring. Heaven knows only why, but it must have been. Mr. Douglas gave it up. Then either in cold blood or in the course of a struggle... Douglas may have gripped the hammer that was found on the mat. He shot Douglas in this horrible way. He dropped his gun, and also it would seem this queer card, VV341, whatever that may mean. And he made his escape through the window and across the moat at the very moment when Cecil Barker was discovering the crime. How's that, Mr. Holmes? Very interesting, but a tad unconvincing. Man, it would be absolute nonsense if it wasn't that anything else is even worse, cried MacDonald. Somebody killed the man, and whoever it was, I could clearly prove to you that he should have done it some other way. What does he mean by allowing his retreat to be cut off like that? What does he mean by using a shotgun when silence was his one chance of escape? Come, Mr. Holmes, it's up to you to give us a lead, since you say Mr. White Mason's theory is unconvincing. Holmes had sat intently observant during this long discussion, missing no word that was said, with his keen eyes darting right into left, and his forehead wrinkled with speculation. I should like a few more facts before I get so far as a theory, Mr. Mack, he said, kneeling down beside the body. Dear me, these injuries are really appalling. Can we have the butler for a moment? Ames, I understand that you have often seen this very unusual mark, a branded triangle inside a circle upon Mr. Douglas's forearm. Frequently, sir. You've never heard any speculation as to what it means? No, sir. It must have caused great pain when it was inflicted. It is undoubtedly a burn. Now, I observe, Ames, there is a small piece of plaster at the angle of Mr. Douglas's jaw. Did you observe that in life? Yes, sir. He cut himself in shaving there yesterday morning. Did you ever know him to cut himself in shaving before? Not for a long time, sir. Suggestive, said Holmes. It may, of course, be mere coincidence, or it may point to some nervousness, which would indicate that he had reason to apprehend danger. Had you noticed anything in his conduct yesterday, Ames? 
It struck me he was a little restless and excited, sir. Ha! The attack may not have been entirely unexpected. We do seem to be making a little progress, do we not? Perhaps you would rather do the questioning, Mr. Mack? No, Mr. Holmes, it's in better hands than mine. Well, then we will pass to this card, VV341. It is rough cardboard. Have you of any sort in the house? I don't think so. Holmes walked across to the desk and dabbed a little ink from each bottle onto the blotting paper. It was not printed in this room, he said. This is black ink and the other purplish. It was done by a thick pen and these are fine. No, it was done elsewhere. I should say, can you make anything of the inscription names? Nothing, sir. What do you think, Mr. Mack? It gave me the impression of a secret society of some sort. The same with a badge upon his forearm. That's my idea, too, said White Mason. Well, we can adopt it as a working hypothesis and see how far our difficulties disappear. An agent from such a society makes his way into the house, waits for Mr. Douglas, blows his head nearly off with his weapon, and escapes by wading the moat, after leaving a card beside the dead man, which will, when mentioned in the papers, tell other members of the society that vengeance has been done. That all hangs together, but why this gun, of all weapons? Exactly. And why the missing ring? Quite so. And why no arrest? It's past two now. I take it for granted that since drawn every constable within forty miles has been looking out for a wet stranger. That is so, Mr. Holmes. Well, unless he has a burrow close by or a chance of clothes ready, they can hardly miss him. And yet they have missed him, up till now. Holmes had gone to the window and was examining with his lens the blood mark on the sill. It is clearly the tread of a shoe. It is remarkably broad, a splay foot, one would say. Curious, because so far as one can trace any footmark on this mud-stained corner, one wouldn't say it was a more shapely sole. However, they are certainly very indistinct. What's this under the side table? Mr. Douglas's dumbbells, said Ames. Dumbbell. There's only one. Where's the other? I don't know, Mr. Holmes. There may have only been one. I have not noticed them for months. One dumbbell, Holmes said seriously. But his remarks were interrupted by a sharp knock at the door. A tall, sunburned, capable-looking, clean-shaved man looked in at us. I had no difficulty in guessing that this was the Cecil Barker of whom I had heard. His masterful eyes traveled quickly with a questioning glance from face to face. Sorry to interrupt your consultation, said he, but you should hear the latest news. An arrest? No such luck, but they found his bicycle. The fellow left his bicycle behind him. Come and have a look. It's within a hundred yards of the hall door. We found three or four grooms and idlers standing in the drive inspecting a bicycle which had been drawn out from a clump of evergreens in which it had been concealed. It was a well-used Rudge Whitworth, splashed as from a considerable journey. There was a saddlebag with spanner and oil can, but no clue as to the owner. It would be a grand help to the police, said the inspector, if these things were numbered and registered. But we must be thankful for what we've got. If we can't find where he went to, at least we are likely to get where he came from. But what in the name of all that is wonderful makes the fellow leave it behind? And how in the world has he got away without it? We don't seem to get a gleam of light in this case, Mr. Holmes. Don't we? My friend, as we thoughtfully, I wonder. Thanks for listening. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. If you enjoy the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Vicario and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.